stunning in verse 1. But mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power, have nothing to do with such people. They are the kind who worm their way into homes and gain control over gullible women, who are loaded down with sins and are swayed by all kinds of evil desires, always learning but never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so also these teachers oppose the truth. They are men of depraved minds who, as far as the faith is concerned, are rejected. But they will not get very far because, as in the case of those men, their folly will be clear to everyone. You, however, know all about my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, faith, patience, love, endurance, persecutions, sufferings, what kinds of things happened to me in Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra, the persecutions I endured. Yet the Lord rescued me from all of them. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted while evildoers and imposters will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of, because you know those from whom you learned it, and how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. This is God's word. With no one to talk to about the gospel and sexuality, I just ended up not going to church anymore um, and really had nowhere to turn at that point. Found that I just didn't feel safe to open up there. Um, I still wanted to follow Jesus, but couldn't figure out how to reconcile the two things. For me, this has been an issue that I think we've been silent on far too long. These are tough things to be discussing. It's really easy to want to keep quiet, to not rock the boat. I know that when we speak on issues of sexuality, it's personal, it's difficult, and I find it hard to know what to say. Sometimes I find it easy to be anxious about upsetting someone and offending them, and no one wants to do that, so it's easier to keep quiet. If anything, it seems like speaking into this from a biblically faithful perspective will turn people away from Jesus. And the very last thing that I want to do and those that I'm in community with want to do is turn people away from Jesus. We're convinced he's the most important person for anybody to get to know. My three adult children have grown up in a world where there's an awful lot said about relationships and sexuality. The problem is, most of that has not been said by the church. I heard about a nine-year-old who came home from school 
and she came home and told her mum, mum, I'm bisexual. Her mum asked her to explain why she thought that. She said, because at school today I was told, if I'm a girl and I love a boy, then I'm heterosexual, and if I'm a girl who loves another girl, I'm gay. If I love both, I'm bisexual. What the world says is fundamentally confusing, and for many people, really damaging. People feel hurt. People are being lied to about sex all the time. People are being told your value comes from your, your sexual identity and what you're doing with it. And yet the Bible has this wonderfully positive view. For young people in particular, but for all of us today, really, we're swimming in a world where the information that we consume, the images that we see, they're all pointing to a view of reality where what's most important is me having my desires realized, is me becoming my true, authentic self. And in some sense, there is some overlap with the Christian story. Jesus does come that we might know life to the full. Um, and his desire is for us to become the best version of ourselves that we can be, not as a personal improvement journey, but in the context of relationship with him. Well, good morning. Uh, if we've not met, uh, my name's Matt, and we're um, doing something slightly differently then for the, the next four weeks. So rather than working our way through uh, a book of the Bible, uh, we're hitting pause on that. And um, as this slightly introduces, thinking on matters of uh, gender and sexuality fairly explicitly for the next four Sundays in the mornings. So let me pray that we'd uh, have a useful time as we do so. Our great God and Father, thank you that you're our creator. You are a tender and loving creator. You know what is best for us. And at times, as children, we don't want to hear it. As times, we think we know better. Father, help us. Help us understand the truth of the scriptures, the wisdom in the scriptures. Father, help. would you please shape us by the truths of your word, even this morning we ask in order that we may indeed be fulfilled, in order that we may bring honour to you. Amen. Well, now, obviously, as a, as a vicar, I can't uh, recommend everything in the life of Brian, um, which in many senses is, uh, is a pretty shocking film. But um, uh, they make some points really very, very well. And uh, so there's one point in the film, The Life of Brian, they go to Brian's house uh, to acclaim him. And the dialogue goes uh, a little bit like this. Um, Brian, well, it's got a bit confused there, but anyway, let me read it to you. Uh, so Brian says, please, please, listen, I've, I've got one or two things to say to you. And the crowd say, tell us, tell us both of these things. And he says, no, look, you've got it all wrong. I'm not the Messiah. You don't need to follow anybody. You can think for yourselves. You're all individuals. Yes, we're all individuals, say the crowd. You're all different. Yes, we are all different. And then one man says, I'm not. And the rest of the crowd say, shh, you're one of us. And it's sort of mockingly uh, referring to a tendency that's, that's there timelessly true. What one book, I guess, two years ago now, called The Madness of Crowds. And in this regard, we live in a culture which says you must be true to yourself. You must look inside 
and be true to what you find. And everyone must be free to do whatever they want, unless you disagree with us, in which case you can shut up. And that's the culture that we live in at the moment. You're meant to go with the crowd. and Don't, don't disagree, for goodness sake. Woe betide you if you do so. So uh, the triumph of self-defining, I saw even displayed it in cereals. I don't know if this one graces your breakfast table, but Kellogg's now. Boxes are for cereal, not people. No matter who you are, who you love, or what pronouns you use, you're too awesome to fit into a box. Not that I've tried to climb into a cereal box. but um, uh, And you think, okay, well done, Kellogg's. Cost you nothing. A little bit of virtue signaling. Everyone in the... Uh, everyone in the um, boardroom feels good about themselves. Don't do anything, of course. Uh, don't do anything, but just virtue signal, and uh, everyone will think you're very wonderful indeed. So that's our culture. You must be true to yourself. Look inside. Love whatever you find. And the Bible would say, well, no, something to that. But you must allow God to define the root of happiness. You must allow the Lord to define who you are if you're to have a deep contentment. And so we'll see this morning just in 2 Timothy 3. Don't follow the crowd, but stand firm on the Scriptures. So I say, a month then on these issues of uh, sexuality and gender, and uh, obviously some in the room will go, oh, no, um, why do we have to have this sort of stuff I mean, it's good to believe what the Bible believes, but oh, do we have to have it on a Sunday, for goodness sake? Um, and um, you don't need to put your hands up if that's quite how you feel. But some, of course, inevitably feel along those. Let me give you a few reasons why I, I do think we have to speak about it. Um, the first is, as well, says the video says, the society is. And we're naive to think we just mustn't talk about it in church when the world talks fairly openly about it. And in a slightly chaotic way, so you heard a nine-year-old there. Did you see the, the six-year-old on the Isle of Wight was told by her teachers in February, um, transphobic. I mean, this six-year-old had come home and said, Mum and Dad, I'm a bit confused. There's a, there's a boy in the class. He's now wearing a dress. We've got to call her her. I don't, I don't really understand. And uh, the parents wrote in and said, look, I'm, we're not sure about how this has been handled, actually, was their complaint. You know, there was no real preparation. The boy, and um, they were just told, well, you're homophobic, and so, sorry, you're transphobic, and so is your child. I mean, six. What do you, I mean, what? What does he know? He's just a bit confused that his mate is now wearing a dress, and he's called a her. Or, I mean, you, you don't need to tell you these things. Last month, poor uh, Keir Starmer and the whole front bench of Labour got themselves into all sorts of knots, uh, can a woman have a penis? He was asked on LBC radio uh, 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 and all sorts of confusion. Um, and then the whole Labour front bench, I don't know if you saw it, they sort of paraded out and got themselves into knots. That's just the UK. No better, of course, than the US, you know, the more recent Supreme Court nominee. Can you define a woman? I can't. All right. You're still going to sit on the Supreme Court. Can you define a woman? I can't. But you know this. The, the angst, different competing groups. What about, what about trans women in sports, in the swimming pool, on the bicycle? What, what does... Confusion. All sorts of confusion. Confusion, competing rights. Who, whose rights trump whose? 
So society's talking about these things. Our denomination is, um, so the Church of England is just, well, it's sort of still going, but just finished formally what is called the Living in Love and Faith Project. I guess the, 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 the subtext of that is, are we going to change the current position within the Church of England? Can a man um, uh, about marriage? Is it just between a man or a woman or not? So a denomination that's sort of going on and on, um, rumbling on in the Church of England. I think the main thing I'd want to say, though, wh- why talk about it is because, well, some amongst us would say, please do. Please do. Let me quote you from someone who's not amongst us, but um, uh, Ed Shaw is a, is a church minister down in Bristol who is a very openly uh, same-sex attracted. But he puts it this way in um, a recent book. A church which is either silent or vague about this, sexual issues, is a hard place to battle the temptations. He goes on. Think of your greatest besetting sin, whatever that may be for you, and consider how much your effort to say no would be totally undermined if someone said, well, it doesn't really matter. Why resist thinking or doing that if it's not in any sense wrong or sinful? So you might think, a month on these sort of issues, why do we have to do this? Nothing else. A a failure to teach what the scriptures say on issues of gender and sexuality is fundamentally unkind to those for whom it's a presenting issue. Really unkind. So I stand here and say, do I have to do this again the next month? Isaiah, I like Isaiah. Can we go back to Isaiah? We have to do it. It's being kind to those amongst us for whom this is their presenting fight. But we're beginning this week somewhat in the background, as it were. Uh, 1 Timothy 3, is, or excuse me, 2 Timothy chapter 3 is what I want to look at uh, uh, this week, which has nothing obvious to say about sexuality at all or issues of gender at all. But it is about where you find authority. And in one sense, the, the basic question is, which way round is it? Do you allow the, the, the Scriptures to interpret your experience or do you allow your experiences to interpret how you read the Scriptures? And in many senses, that is the issue, uh, certainly within the church conversations. Question, to clarify, not do our experiences matter or those of of our friends or or those whose voices we may hear in the media, not do their experiences matter. Of course they do. Of course they do. But how do you interpret them? We interpret our life experiences through what God has revealed timelessly in the scriptures. And here in 2 Timothy 3, the warning is this, don't follow the crowd, but stand firm upon the scriptures. That's the warning. Uh, Just to jump in then, he's writing to, uh, Paul is writing to uh, his uh, younger uh, brother in the faith, uh, Timothy, and uh, just warning him, these sort of things are going to go on. So chapter 3, verse 1, mark this. There will be terrible times or seasons in the last days. Just there's Bible language for any time since the resurrection of Jesus Christ. There'll be seasons, moments, years, decades, which are particularly difficult for the Christian church. 
And one manifestation of that is they'll look like what's here in verses 2 to 9. So we'll work through it like this. People will love themselves and lose the truth, verses 2 to 9. But as for you, stand firm on the Scriptures. Okay, that's it. People will love themselves and lose the truth in these difficult seasons. But as for you, stand firm on the Scriptures. So that's what will take place. People will lose, excuse me, love themselves and lose the truth. Verse 2. So Paul describes the sort of things that will happen. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. It's a funny list, a log list. Fundamentally, the people here, they love the wrong things. They love themselves at the beginning of verse 2. They don't love God, end of verse 4. They're sort of uh, the bookends to it. But I wonder, has there ever been a culture more obviously manifesting this than ours, this love of self? Did you see last month? Uh, There's a public letter that uh, Rowan Williams, the former Archbishop of Canterbury, and uh, Steve Chalk, who's a prominent church leader, they wrote to uh, the Prime Minister. We may have the headline from the newspaper. Becoming transgender is a sacred journey of becoming whole. So this was uh, uh, their contribution to the debate on conversion therapy. I don't know if you picked up, but the government in its outlawing of conversion therapy just removed uh, all trans issues from it, anxious, anxious about the implications of that. It's a very striking thing they wrote. To be trans is to enter a sacred journey of becoming a whole, precious, honoured and loved by yourself, by others, by God. Now, I would want to distinguish uh, gender dysphoria is a very real medical condition, I mean, previous to the last 10 years, only a a tiny minority of the population would have experienced it. They would hold, again, prior to the last 10 years, those experiencing gender dysphoria would say that there are two sexes, male and female. I have always felt a complete dissonance with the sex of my body and can't reconcile myself. But a tiny minority, a genuine medical condition. That is very different from this, which is, this is a religion, This is we go on a sacred quest to discover our wholeness in changing gender. That's a religious position. The self is God. The self is sacred. That is the complete opposite of uh, the Christian gospel. By contrast with someone like Steve Chalk and Rowan Atkinson, you have the incredibly brave Kira Bell, who... um, has been in and out of the press uh, for a number of while. You know, this born male, transitioned to female, and deeply regrets it. Would say, in her own words, I have mutilated my body. I have not become whole. I have broken myself. And so she went to court, uh, what, in June, uh, to take the uh, Tavistock NHS Trust Um, to court to stop them providing puberty-suppressing drugs to children too young to give informed consent. As you may know, she won the case in June. It was overturned on appeal in the autumn. She's now asked for appeal to go to the Supreme Court, uh, and we wait to see what happens there. 
But what is striking is if you read Kira Bell's story, she says at various points, I had my doubts about what I was doing, but gained my courage from the internet. Huh. So, so when she was a young teen, feeling this sort of dissonance, uh, I've born male, but I feel a bit more female, or I'm uncomfortable as a male, what did it mean for her to be true to herself? Well, she was swayed into transitioning by the volume of voices she heard on the internet. I would now say, what a disaster that was. The cultural voices completely confused Kira Bell about who she was, about what it meant for her to be true to herself. Now, Paul describes here what happens when people are lovers of self, what flows from that. It's not very nice, is it? Um, These terms, verse 2, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous. Now, that I think you can see today. What happens if this becomes your cause celebre? You certainly look down upon others with contempt. And what happens if someone challenges the cultural mood? That everyone just must be allowed to be true to themselves. Well, Paul says the culture will be, verse 3, unforgiving, slanderous. If your truth doesn't agree with ours, we'll troll you, we'll despise you, we'll declare bigot upon you. You better be true to yourself. You better agree with an aggressive, radical individualism or we'll hate you and take you down online. So I think what Paul is describing here, no internet in his day, but that sort of unforgiving culture. So some, of course, notoriously or famously, whatever way you want to put it, uh, look within and say, what does it mean to be true to myself? And J.K. Rowling would say, well, I think I'm still a woman, and I think we can still say the word womb, and uh, you, know, you know the vitriol that someone like that experiences. And I have to say, I'm full of nothing but admiration for a multi-millionaire who says, I'm going to die on this hill. This matters so much. More of any Christian conviction, of course, but this is ridiculous where culture is going. So did you see last month published, I mean, she gets death threats all the time, but last month published a book by Gretchen Felter Martin, uh, a novel in which J.K. Rowling features a character and is murdered by trans activists in the novel. And that's published. And you think, ooh, that's um, pretty aggressive. There's another character in it, Gal Braith, also killed, you know, her pseudonym for the, uh, for the other series of books she writes. Uh, okay. But you're allowed to do that. But she, of course, saying, I'm not sure this cultural mood is correct. Hatred. Or Kathleen Stock. Who was the philosophy professor at Sussex University was forced to resign in the autumn. Uh, again, a prominent uh, LGB campaigner herself, uh, uh, very strong in that community. But, but on this issue, she's out of step. So she, of course, in her writing, uh, described the fact that she didn't think that people could change their biological sex. So volume of death threats against her meant she just resigned, forced out of her post at Sussex University. I betide you if you resist. This is an unforgiving movement. 
this quest for the sacred whole. You disagree with the cultural mood on issues of sexuality and gender, woe betide you at the moment. Or this last pair, verse 4, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. That is our world, I think. So we're told all the time, aren't we, that if an act is enjoyable and no one else is harmed, that is its justification. Apart from someone's harmed, there are always peripheral casualties. I think of a friend who left his wife and two children. The two children were teenagers, and she left, at the, uh, sorry, he left to, to set up home with another woman and said, I deserve this. I deserve more fun. To which the older of the two teenagers said, we don't deserve this. But that's always the justification, isn't it? My happiness, being true to myself, greater contentment. You may suffer, sorry. But that's the mood we're in, culturally. Lovers of self and lovers of pleasure, they must always trump love for God here. Last comment on this. The, verse 2, there seems to be a shift in this little block here. Verse 2, Paul describes people. People will be lovers uh, of themselves. He seems to be talking about culture in general. By verse 5 or verse 4, now he seems to be talking about religious people. They're lovers. They, they have a, verse 5, they have a form of godliness but deny its power. It appears to be at this point church leaders. So he envisages a situation where the values of the world have so invaded the church that you just can't tell them apart. And I'm afraid that's what you get with Rowan Williams. Uh, And that's what you get with some of our denomination at the moment, the Church of England, the Living in Love and Faith project, which essentially keeps asking the question, what is God saying today in the 21st century about gender and sexuality. What is God saying today? What is God saying today? And Paul's answer would be, he's saying the same as he's always said, because he's faithful, and he doesn't change his mind. And you may not like it, but he hasn't changed what he's saying. There is no confusion. So there'll be seasons, says Paul. There'll be seasons in history, especially marked by the fact that people will love themselves, and they'll lose the truth. We appear to be in that sort of season at the moment. So people will love themselves and lose the truth, but, verse 10 to 17, but as for you, stand firm upon the Scriptures. Verses 10 to 17. Four times in this letter of 2 Timothy, you get something like, you, however, verse 10, you, however, know all about my teaching, my way of life. Uh, Or verse 14 as it begins, but as for you, as for you, you, however, that sort of contrast, you get it. Uh, four times in the letter. The world is going in this direction, but, but you don't, Timothy, stand firm. So this is what the, Timothy's life looked like. Uh, verse 10, you however know all about my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, faith, patience, love, endurance, persecution, sufferings, what kinds of things happened to me in Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, the persecutions I endured, the Lord rescued me from all of them. You, you know what my life was like. Verse 12, here's an unavoidable truth. 
In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Look, you just need to know that universal popularity is impossible for a follower of Jesus. You just need to know that. Verse 13, especially when evildoers and imposters go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Verse 14, but as for you, you know what's right. Continue in what you've learned and have become convinced of because, well, two reasons. You know from those who learned it. And secondly, you know how from infancy you've known the scriptures able to make you wise for salvation. You know those who taught you and their lives and you know the scriptures. And particularly two things of them, that verse 16, all scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. All Scripture is God-breathed. Not merely that these words are inspired, or, or, or if you dig hard enough, you can find truth within them, but these words are the very words of God, timelessly true. This does not need updating. For some, within our own denomination, the sense is, yeah, the Bible, it's sort of good, it's good, um, but we've learned a lot since it was written, and what we've learned, we must allow to interpret it. And Paul says, no, this is timelessly true. It is a bewildering arrogance to think that we might know more than God. At the end of last year, I enjoyed the, uh, I don't know, look, I paper you read, but anyway, I read The Guardian. The, um, and uh, 200 years, uh, they celebrated 200 years of um, the newspaper. And I thought to its enormous credit, published an article uh, on its 200th birthday, which listed the worst errors of judgment they'd made in 200 years. So I thought, good for you. I mean, that, there's some humility in that. Um, so during the American Civil War, the Guardian supported the slave-owning South and called Abraham Lincoln, quote, a dangerous fraud and a charlatan. Well, that doesn't look so good now. Um, in 1857, the Guardian cheered on suppression of the Indian mutiny because Briti the British have an inherent racial superiority. Doesn't look quite so good now um, that that was their stance. Uh, the Guardian was against the introduction of the NHS, said it would never work. Who would know? Uh, or one of my favourites. In 1914, it said, after the death of Archduke Franz Ferdinand, people are making a great fuss about this. It'll have no impact upon European politics whatsoever. <laughs> now, I thought, good for you. Good for you. Of course, having listed some pretty shocking, I mean, appalling errors... Do you think that sort of encourages a little humility about positions held today? Let me tell you, it does not. Every, every position is held with a certain vehemence and dogmatism. And you'd have thought, having made a few mistakes along the way, you might say, well, maybe this is right. Maybe this is the, the, the way forward on whatever the issue of the day, maybe asylum policy, etc. Um, oh, no. We are absolutely right, and whoever disagrees with us is disgracefully wrong. There's no humility. But any human words are a mixture of truth and error. Good intentions, bad, of course. These 
What we have here are timelessly true words, God breathed in the scriptures. That's where they come from, that's their origin. And it is also their function that the scriptures are God breathed. In the sense of we're meant to hear, read, and know the breath of God upon us, know the transforming power of God upon us, know his intimate presence with us. This is a present and contemporary word to you and me. The word of God is life-giving in that sense, God breathed. Like Genesis 2, where God forms Adam and breathes life into him. Like John chapter 20, where the risen Jesus breathes upon his disciples and says, receive God's spirit. In that sense, these words are God-breathed. They change us. Words change us. We know that. I trust you. I love you. I forgive you. I'll be with you. Those are utterly transforming words. That's what these words are like. They are for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training in righteousness so that the servant of God can be equipped. A few years ago, some know this, a few years ago, I took swimming lessons in my early 40s. I was just a bit fed up by being taken, overtaken in a lane by someone twice my age with blue rinse and thinking, this is ridiculous. How, how, why am I such a hopeless splasher? So I had um, a few lessons and um, got better. Probably need a few more, forgotten it all. But um, what does a swimming teacher do? They, they sort of teach you, you know, do this, do... Yeah, don't do that. You're still doing that flapping thing with your arms that just expends lots of energy and goes nowhere. Just stop that. You're not a windmill. You're swimming. Just stop that. They correct. They train. They make you better. The Word of God is about that task. Transforms our character. And so at times, and maybe on some of these issues, gender, sexuality, maybe on some of these, we don't like being told we've got it wrong. It's actually awkward personally, in a deep personal sense. Is that right? But I have these longings. For, for many of us in the cultural, oh, we're so out of step here with the drift of culture. Yeah, maybe. But maybe the murder of Franz Duke Franz Ferdinand was a big deal. Maybe it would have an impact upon politics, even though at the time people didn't think so. Maybe the NHS has been pretty good overall, something we're grateful for, even though at the time despised in its origins. You and I, we need to listen to the story of what God is doing with this world. His story, he planned it before creation. His story, it includes you and me. His story that shapes you as you were designed to be. So we do need to not follow the crowd, but stand firm on the scriptures for our good, for the good of our kids, because it's right. Let's pray together.
Our great God and Father, you know well how uh, deeply these issues run into our lives. You know every sin, you of our body, every thought in our minds. You've knitted us together in every way. Father, you know how we all feel uh, about these issues, how emotive they are. Father, would you help us to truly be shaped by what's in the Scriptures? Father, you know how sensitive these topics are in our culture today. Forgive me anything I've been clumsy about. But Lord, would we be open to hearing what you have timelessly said about who we are, about what is good for us, and not just go with the crowd because it's convenient, because it seems right at this moment in time. Father, would we trust your timeless word, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Shall we stand?